Welcome to Iridescence, a podcast hosted by two current ACLU undergrads who share a passion for storytelling, and we're revamping our podcast. Every month, we will be interviewing a new guest who's passionate about uplifting marginalized voices and entertainment. I'm Raylene. And I'm Jeremy. And in this episode, we'll be having a discussion with Vanny Lay. She's the first ever Entertainment Outreach Program Manager at Respectability, a nonprofit organization fighting stigmas and advancing opportunities so people with disabilities can fully participate in all aspects of community. Vanny uses her brand strategy and program management experience from entertainment and nonprofit fields to fight stigmas by ensuring authentic representations of people with disabilities in film and television. In her spare time, she enjoys playing the piano or ukulele and singing, mentoring college students or catching up on television. So after you guys know this background, we can get into the questions. So yeah, thank you so much again for coming on. I know Jeremy probably knows a lot of the answers to these questions, but I would love if you could define disability and give an overview of different types of disability for me and for the rest of our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me on here post-revamp. I'm really excited to just talk to other people who care about uplifting marginalized voices in this industry. So the definition of disability, so respectability uses the one that is defined by the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, the ADA, and the U.S. government defines disability as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. So An example of a major life activity would be caring for oneself, performing manual tasks, walking, seeing, hearing, speaking, breathing, learning, and working. So anything that limits just like those kind of day-to-day actions um, would then be defined as a disability. And so um, one of the misconceptions is that disabilities per the ADA, ADA and getting covered by that is that they can be temporary or permanent. Um, So let's say you get into an accident and then you're temporarily unable to walk and you use a wheelchair in the time that you're a wheelchair user, you are part of the disability community. They can be visible or non-visible. Most disabilities are actually non-visible and you can either be born with a disability or acquire it later in life. And so one in four adults in the U.S. actually have a disability. And as you get older, the chances of you being part of the disability community gets um, higher. And so it is one of those unique communities where you can join it at any point in your life. And it makes us so diverse and so resilient and so innovative, but like some of the examples of um, the types of disabilities that you can have are hearing, cognitive, vision, independent living, or self-care. And so things like if you're deaf or blind or a wheelchair user, those are things that I think people kind of think of when they first think of disability, but then other disabilities um, that people might not know count are the mental health umbrella counts as a disability. So Um, anxiety, depression, OCD, and then actually cancer is also considered a disability as well. Yeah, I wait, I actually didn't know that cancer counted. So the more you know, but yeah, so that was super insightful. Thank you for sharing all of that. Another question that we wanted to ask, especially because Ray and I both are very interested in pursuing careers in the entertainment industry. So we often talk about how important it is to see ourselves, our culture, and our lived experience on the screen. And with that, we were wondering, what do you think is the state of representation for the disabled community in entertainment today? 
yeah, so um, this will probably come at no surprise to you, but disability representation right now in entertainment is not great. There is so much work to do, but it is, we've been seeing a huge trend in an interest in just having a wider inclusion conversation. And so our intention when we um, work with our different studios um, and networks and various partners is that we want to kind of apply the disability lens to existing DEI conversations. So then that way you are not only being mindful of disability, but you're seeing what does disability look like when you are, let's say, a person of color and then disabled, because that comes with certain unique barriers like access to healthcare, knowledge, opportunities, um, but then also stigmas as well. And so Right now, a lot of the portrayals, um, even though disabilities affect all communities, um, cut across every other marginalized community, most of the portrayals are still people who are white. And that perpetuates um, this understanding that it's not something that is diverse, whereas anyone can become disabled at any time and part of any other community. And so... And then in the 2020 to 2021 TV season, only 3.5% of scripted television characters had disabilities. And of course, it will also come at no shock to you. A lot of them are still inauthentically casted. So um, actors without disabilities still play more than 95% of all characters with disabilities on TV. And then in a report from the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative in 2019, only 2.3% of characters in film we're seeing. And so those are just numbers and it's not even getting to how accurately portrayed these characters are because are they authentically casted or inauthentically casted? Are you casting people who understand these different nuances? Do you have people behind the camera who are writing these characters and doing their due diligence to make sure that these are authentically portrayed? Because, and are you giving these characters more character development than just their disability, right? Because even if we have more disabled characters on screen, a lot of times they're still side characters. They still fall into different tropes. They are still, their existence is purely to move forward, like the character development of the non-disabled lead. And so we're trying to not only fight like and have more representation, but just make sure that when they are portrayed, they're portrayed in a way that shows the disability community for what they can do and not what they can. I, I was wondering what your thoughts were on, I guess, about the representation, because Jeremy and I had a little disagreement about it when we reviewed Sound of Metal. I don't know if he told you about that, but I was thinking, I was thinking the casting of the lead was like interesting, an interesting choice because he wasn't um, a, a deaf person or from the um, hard of hearing community. But then Jeremy, I, I don't know. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on casting folks who aren't disabled into like roles. Yeah. Those, yeah. I don't know if that's, there's like no common yeah. answer. No, and that's a, that's a really, really great question too, because I think that The Sound of Metal is a really interesting case study in which like Sound of Metal is like such a huge win for the AVI community because of Riz Ahmed. And then him playing the role so well. And one of the great things that Riz Ahmed did do well, and I give him credit for that, is that he did a lot of research and leaned on learning from people who were actually from the community rather than his own assumptions of what it is like to be deaf. So they had like ASL consultants on set and they're even within the promotion of Sound of Metal, 
they were having a lot of, um, there was a lot of press coverage on the actual ASL interpreter who was on set, who is a black man. And so you're still uplifting communities of color. And Riz was also presenting it in a way where he, um, I felt like never tried to be a representative of the deaf community, but using his non-disabled privilege was shedding awareness onto a community that doesn't get seen on screen. And so I think that when roles are inauthentically casted like that, like I do think that to some extent, um, people do have a responsibility to use their privilege to like uplift the community, but then it does speak more to um, where the industry as a whole is and how they see, think of disability and authentic casting in that sense as kind of an afterthought. Because like one of the things that I had read an interview in which the director, I believe it was the director or someone who was responsible for Sound of Meadow was in an interview said like they were having difficulty finding someone who could commit to the role because one of uh, Rizana's character plays the drums. And they were like, I really want someone who can learn how to play the drums and learn ASL and do that justice. And we could not find that until we found Riz Ahmed. And for me, that's not great because it's like, there are so many deaf drummers out there that know ASL and that's not commitment, that's just our life. And so, but then it's really important in that nuance where for something like that, we haven't been public or don't advocate against watching Sound of Meadow and still wanna support it because at the end of the day, it's still representation that we haven't seen before. And we don't want to diminish wider like diversity conversations because again, it's such a huge win for the AAPI community. So I think as an industry, like moving forward, we have to think about how we can have and uplift communities without diminishing or taking away other needed conversations that need to be had. So, and that's why like when we say like apply the disability lens, it isn't to say like, hey, cast like a white guy because that yes, it would have been authentically casted, but that would have taken away from the API representation, right? But then like as an industry, you can cast someone who is API and deaf, but we just have to get to a point where we can have those conversations and be intersectional about things like that. And so, and that's also like, it's such an interesting thing when we talk about film and TV that we feel like isn't really doing it right. Is that like a lot of times, I think it's more indicative of the industry and the conversations that need to be had than like what the movie is necessarily doing wrong, if that makes sense. But yeah, but it's a great question. That was such a oh. profound answer to a nuanced topic. And huh. I think what you said is basically my argument to Ray in terms of like in an ideal world, obviously you would want to cast authentically and find a deaf drummer, but you know, you have to think about like marketability and oftentimes it's like executives that decide these things. And then if there was anyone to portray the deaf community that wasn't part of that community, I couldn't think of someone better than Riz because he was such an ally and put in all the work. Yeah. So that was basically my argument. That yeah. When we were and I think it's there. like, and that's also the thing too, is that it's more than just authentically casting. It's about having people behind the camera mm -hmm. who can create those changes. Like to your point, you said there were probably higher ups or executives that made that decision, but it's like, if those higher ups and executives were mindful of like yeah. being intersectional, like this wouldn't even be a conversation yeah. or like sound of metal still pulling in ASL consultants and making sure that they, to your point, pulled in someone who was practicing allyship in the best way. But we want to get to a point where we're mm -hmm. moving past 
like allyship and actually uplifting mm-hmm. self-advocacy um, mm-hmm. without tearing that down. So like forward thinking and then like thinking about it that way. And so it is, it is very nuanced and like, thank you for calling that profound because this is something <laughs> that we talk about a lot. And like mm-hmm. another example and not in the disability community, but even in like the LGBTQ plus community, like with the new Eternals movie coming out there, Brian Tyree Henry his character in the movie is gay. And so in my opinion, um, not speaking on behalf of the community because I don't identify as part of the community, but watching it, I think it's really awesome to see that two men of color in a loving relationship with a child as being parents. And that's so normal and so normalized. They even share a kiss on screen. And like, that's some bare minimum shit, but it's like, we've never seen it. But then- Brian Tyree Henry is not part of the LGBTQ plus community. Does it take away from the fact that it's the first superhero in Marvel to have that identity? No, but at the same time, like we can do better. Um, And so it's like thinking about like, it doesn't stop there. And then this was also a conversation. Like, I don't know if y'all have seen CODA. CODA is really fantastic because it's just, really really funny people it's a heartfelt movie that makes you cry and it's not because it's like inspiration porn it's just because it is a heartfelt coming of age family story and the family members three of the family members are dead but then there's still conversations about how like it's an all-white family the community that they live in is pretty much majority white the lead is a coda a child of deaf adults and they're centering her over instead of the deaf characters. But that still doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, it still broke a record. It's still deaf representation that we haven't seen. And it's proving that this is there is a need and an interest for these kind of stories that haven't been seen before. And so instead of like tearing down CODA and the things that it might not be doing perfectly and putting that kind of pressure on it, just to spark these conversations about the industry. And like, I could go on like a whole thing because like, I also think that in like 30 years, people are going to look back at Crazy Rich Asians and be like, yo, how the heck did we think this was like good API representation? And I think people are already starting to see that too, but that doesn't take away from the fact that like, it was like the first time in 25 years that there was an all Asian cast in Hollywood. And that's so cool. But yeah, but whole tangent. So no, that was, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for saying all of that. And I think, I think the entertainment industry is so stuck in like optics a lot of the time that it's not Mm -hmm. fast enough. And it's, I don't think it's ever going to be fast enough, sadly, for like marginalized communities, whether it be like people of color or the queer community or um, folks who are disabled. And yeah, it just makes me sad that it's, it's never going to be fast enough. Yeah. So I I I agree with that too, because I don't believe in giving films and TV shows credit where credit isn't due just because they did the bare minimum of like authentically Mm -hmm. casting because maybe just because something is authentically casted doesn't that also doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good portrayal um because like they might not have anyone behind the camera um creating that impactful change or making sure that it's authentic but it's about like giving credit where at least credit is due um and then using that as kind of a springboard to continue to do better rather than being like oh it stops there we did the best we could because no we did not do the best we could but Mm -hmm. yeah so it is this really interesting nuance but yeah yeah and I I actually just came out of it I I I pulled an all-nighter for this midterm I just took today (laughs) and I read this book 
I read a whole book about how media basically shapes our perceptions and basically shape our like truth of the world. So I think there's like something in saying that optics do matter um, and seeing that representation does matter because it literally shapes your yeah. reality, like people's reality and people's truth of the world. Like I had, I didn't know a lot about the deaf community before I watched Sound of Metal, to be honest. And even though I know like Riz Ahmed, like in terms of representation, he isn't authentically casted. Like I, I, I still was able to learn about the experience of a deaf person and the experience of the deaf community through watching that because like media really kind of shapes your perception of the world and what you perceive as true. So yeah, I think it's very nuanced, but I just wanted to say that because I studied, I studied really hard for that midterm and I read a book about it and I thought it related because nice. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> oh yeah, Jeremy, I know you had something you wanted to say a while ago. Yeah. So you were talking about how it's like really trendy right now to like for entertainment companies invest resources into DNI. So I was wondering in terms of it being trendy, do you think that means that this will only be temporary or do you think that the industry has like permanently, you know, decided to head towards this direction? Yeah. And that's a really, really great question too, um, because I, I don't think that this is just a phase or that people are going to stop caring about it. I do think that people go through different pockets and like different phases of caring about specific issues, but I think like DEI and that kind of inclusion and representation on screen, like I do think that that's going to have a forward trend and it's going to just continue to get better. And I think a big part of that is actually because of people like you and Ray, because y'all are gonna graduate and go and do super cool things in entertainment and advocate for this kind of change. And that's why like I keep talking about how um, what you see on screen is very much impacted by who is behind the camera creating those changes. So as people who are naturally more mindful of DEI and want to do it right and want to ingrain that as part of their career and their jobs, go out and do in the industry and then lean on your lived experiences, um, being having marginalized identities to do that, like that's going to make for better and more authentic representation. And so, and that's like one of the big things too at respectability, like one of our programs um, is this annual summer lab for disabled entertainment professionals. And this is for anyone who works behind the camera and identifies as disabled. So like directors, producers, writers. And the big part of that is because we kind of looked at, at the time when we started the lab, respectability was kind of looking at the current state of like disability inclusion in media and saw that there were a lot of other amazing disability organizations already doing the work. And a lot of their programs are really focused on actors and developing actors with disabilities. And so thinking about like the space that was a space that was underserved and a space that needed that support within disability, we, we saw and that like combined with us working with our different partners and seeing how much of a difference it is when they have people behind the camera who are speaking on their own lived experiences created the lab because then that helps build the pipeline and answer that excuse that's like, oh, we don't have anyone in the pipeline or we can't find anyone. And it's like, no, look at all these people every year that we bring into the lab. And these are people who are working and have this experience and they just need that access. They just need that opportunity because they are amazing and they have the lived experience. And so I do think that it's going to get better. It's going to get more intersectional 
people are going to have these different nuanced conversations because I think right now we're thinking about like different identities, like very like singularly. So it's like you have a woman or you have a person of color or you have someone who is LGBTQ plus, but then why can't you have someone who is a woman of color who is LGBTQ plus, who is also disabled and make sure that they are like not the only character on screen that has all those different identities because that's how it is in real life. Like people have different identities and we just want to see that represented on screen. So I think it is going to get better. Um, but like Raylene said, I think we have like a really, really long way to go before we can have these different conversations because they're so nuanced and so intersectional. Yeah, thank you for that answer. I, I think, and thank you, Jeremy, for that question. That was a really good question. I would love, I mean, I'm sure Jeremy you know this already again, but I'd love to know about how did your passion for uplifting the disabled community start? Yeah, so I kind of started working in entertainment when I was in college. Um, and so I had interned at a few studios, but basically when I started out in college, I was pre-law. Um, and so I was really influenced by the show Scandal, which Carrie Washington, super amazing in it, like badass black woman, woman of color, like kicking ass and taking names in politics. So like, that's what I wanted to do. But then coming into college and realizing that like politics and crisis communications was not quite the field for me is like, well, I still want to create impact in some way. And that's why I thought I wanted to do that. And so then thinking about, well, I don't really know what to do now because I don't really see anyone like me represented on screen. And so like, there's no one to tell me, there's no one that looks like me to influence what I want to do with my life now. And then taking a step back and really wait, like, I'm in Los Angeles, like the entertainment capital of the world. And I was inspired by like, I, my career choice was informed by just seeing someone on screen that was a role model for me. And so like, we've been talking about it, but yeah, like what you see on screen really influences real life and to see yourself represented and see what you can and cannot do. And so like, that was how I kind of started to work in entertainment was because is like, I want to work in an industry that by nature of just existing has the influence and opportunity for impact um, through representation. And it's so important and in ways that people um, don't fully know quite yet, but are because they really care about DEI now. And so I was like working in the industry. Uh, I was kind of doing like marketing and brand partnerships, but throughout all of this was always advocating for underrepresented communities and had always made it known that like my long-term goal was to move over and work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically working and advocating for on-screen representation um, because a, at the time, a lot of the DEI jobs in entertainment were still under like human resources. And while I think that's really important, like DEI should be part of everything. It's just people's existence. It's just their identity. Like it shouldn't be reduced to just one department. And so then now fast forward to 2020 in COVID uh, and with everything happening with the murder of George Floyd, realizing that um, a lot of DEI jobs out there um, that were coming up, I felt like weren't either, were not created for me as an AAPI woman. Um, I didn't want to take up that space or I couldn't tell if they were kind of reactive to things that were going because like that, people caring about that was a trend. 
and like and and like it should be something that's talked about a lot more is like police brutality and on the topic of intersectionality half of the people who are victims of police brutality are actually disabled um but that's actually an intersection that we don't talk about a lot um but anyways and so with all of that happening in 2020 and aligned with like me trying to look for a career change um kind of saw the job posting for respectability and saw that it was about disability. And so I didn't know very much about disability, but recognized that it's something that should be part of DEI conversations. And so just kind of applied to it. And then like basically the entire interview process had um, imposter syndrome and was like, if I don't get it, it's because someone has like a stronger tie to the disability community. Um, and I can talk about this more in length too, but um, but basically throughout the process of interviewing, realized that I was part of the disability community myself. Um, and that was something that I didn't know. Um, and so then ultimately getting this job and like, and that's why like applying the disability lens um, to existing DEI conversations is so then that way it's not this singular thing where it's like someone's disabled. There's also other identities. Like I'm also a woman, I'm also API. Um, and all of those intersect and influence each other and inform how I've lived my life, even though I didn't learn it until I applied to this job. Um, and so, and that's the thing too, is that like, I think when you work in DEI, you just want to uplift all marginalized communities um, because like we have all been excluded. And when you uplift one community, it benefits like the wider DEI conversation. And so like the more I can learn about disability in other communities, um, I think the better off we'll be in terms of just having more intersectional and inclusive representation of just all communities, period. So yeah. You're like literally my role model. I always feel like I'm my brain gets bigger just hearing you speak. But um, you, you mentioned in your answer that you learned that you yourself had a connection to the disability community. So I was wondering if you'd be comfortable sharing on that. Yeah. So basically through that process had shared with like my interviewers that I had like a history of anxiety and then depression. And so I, and then she was like, you are not the only applicant who did this, um, but other people, but that counts as having a disability. You are part of the disability community. And I was like, wow, like what has led in my life till now for me to not have access to that kind of knowledge and realize that mental health is under that. And that really speaks to like the API intersection because like mental health has such a stigma in our community. Um, and so I, and then she shared that with me and I was like, wow, okay, like that's really great. Like it's good for me to know that. And so then coming into work, Right. And then now actually finally post-college having a job that gives me health insurance, um, decided to start therapy as well. Um, and then as part of learning more about the disability community and how diverse is it, it is and learning about like different um, disabilities, um, we actually have a resource called the Hollywood Disability Inclusion Toolkit, shameless plug for our respectability resources. So in there, there's like different sections about different disabilities. And so then I was reading the section about ADHD and I was like, wait, this kind of sounds like me. And I was like toying with the idea for about a few weeks, but really just keeping it to myself. And then I 
finally confided in another coworker who also has ADHD, which is also another really cool thing about people working at respectability is that the majority of people who work there are people with disabilities themselves. And so I was sharing with her and saying like, hey, I think I have ADHD. Like, I think I have like, because of this, this, and this. And I was like, but I don't know, like, I don't want to misrepresent the community. Like, I don't want to just like assume that like, just because I have this. And she was like, stop gaslighting yourself. That's your imposter syndrome talking. At the end of the day, if you think you have it, just go and get, just go to your therapist or go get a diagnosis. And I went and I did. And that has given me access to resources. It's helped me learn more about myself and better inform things that I've done in the past that are really not healthy and conducive to me and the way my brain works. And so it's just been a year of self-discovery and that's been really awesome because working at respectability has educated and empowered me to learn this about myself because I was in a space in which I felt comfortable doing that. And then like through part of learning more about disability and then also going to therapy and things like that, a few months after that also learned that I have dyscalculia. And so dyscalculia is a learning disability similar to dyslexia, but instead of mixing up and having difficulty with letters, I have difficulty with numbers and processing that. And so that influences and affects things like my ability to do math. And so that does not bode well for the model minority myth. And I think that's something that went undiagnosed because of that too, because like growing up, I always thought I was really, really bad at math. And everyone was like, you're not bad at math. You're just not working hard enough. And it's like, I don't know if they would say that to me if I wasn't Asian. And so, because they just like pushed me to work harder. And then like, same thing with the ADHD, which is really interesting too. There's like a New York Times article that came out where a lot of women of color in their 20s during the pandemic are actually now getting diagnosed with ADHD because women and people of color disproportionately are underdiagnosed with ADHD, partially because of like misinformation, misconceptions out there and just lack of access to knowledge of how ADHD is represented. Because like every time you see someone with ADHD on screen, what is it? It's like a hyperactive white boy, right? But it's like, it also presents as inattention. It's also in POCs. It's also in girls. It's also in women. But it gets like dismissed in girls as being overly emotional, which is true because I cried a lot as a kid. And so, but people were like, oh, that's just her being really sensitive, but it's a part of the ADHD. And so, and it's just really interesting to think about all of these things because it's like, for us as within the AAPI community, it's already so hard to talk about basic things like, anxiety and depression so it's like how the hell was I ever supposed to get diagnosed with something like ADHD if like we as a community can't even talk about the basic foundations of things like that and so that's why it's so important to have these intersectional conversations because I also think about like why didn't my teacher see this like I get why my immigrant mom wasn't able to see flag the ADHD but it's like why didn't my teacher see it and it's like if they saw that on TV, do you think like I could have been like I someone would have recognized the signs? Like, I don't know. And so it's been a year of reflection, but that was a very long answer. No, thank you so much for answering that. Jeremy has already been talking for a while about how <laughs> we would get along very well. <laughs> we had a lot of clarities because I feel like your story is very similar to mine and it kind of connecting to the next question. I have had an inkling 
for a while that I have ADHD. I've also struggled with anxiety and depression for I like since like middle school, I would say it all comes down to like systemic oppression. Well, I can, I feel like I can trace it all back to like systemic oppression because it's all like, you know, it's like the patriarchy. It's like the fact that we're not white. It's the fact that mental health is stigmatized in the Asian American community. It's like so many things that stem back to systemic oppression and it just makes me very sad. But anyways, I guess that kind of leads to the next question. I think I I might have ADHD, um, but I've never been professionally diagnosed. I've just looked at all of those like symptom lists you can find online. I've seen a bunch of TikToks actually. Um, <laughs> there's like a lot of, there's like an ADHD TikTok. Like I, yeah. I didn't know that was a Yeah. But yeah, what, what, what point do you think it's like appropriate to check professionally if your self-diagnosis is correct? Yeah. So I want to preface by saying that I'm only speaking purely on my own experiences of going through the same thing. I am not a mental health professional. So this is not professional advice, just, you know, peer to peer. ADHD or to potential ADHD or two, because I think that you're already doing all the right steps. Like I'm sure there's a good chance that you've done the same symptoms checklist that I have, because actually in that Hollywood disability inclusion toolkit, it links like resources to different websites. And so I went on to the American Deficit Disorders Association's official website, and they do have like a self-test checklist. And so that's not an official way of getting a diagnosis, but it is, to your point, like a way of getting access to knowledge because there are like barriers to getting diagnosed to, especially in communities of color. And so that also, being a fellow scatterbrain person, that was something that helped me because then when I like did this checklist, I was able to then at least go into my appointment and say like, and make the case of being like, not that I needed to prove anything, but it helped me get my thoughts together and collected and say like, hey, I think I have this, this, and this because of this, this, and this. And so that helped inform very much. So like that, I would recommend that checklist if you haven't. Um, when in doubt, instead of just, you know, being in your own head, I would just recommend going to someone who can I'm a mental health professional who can diagnose you. And then that way, and that's also one of the great things too, is that since getting diagnosed, I'm also now on medication. And oh my gosh, like no shame in the medication game because like, I didn't know that people paid attention like this. Like I thought everyone tuned out like this. And so it's been really helpful and just like getting my life back on track. And now like knowing this about myself has been really helpful. So I would encourage you, Um, If you have these questions, just go because the worst thing that can happen is that they just say, no, you don't have it. But if you feel like you have these different symptoms, it's possible that it might be something else, right? Like it might be, and maybe it isn't OCD, maybe, or ADHD, it might be OCD, for example, because I don't know what symptoms you have. Like one of the things I learned in therapy was that like, I don't have ADHD and generalized anxiety. What I have is just ADHD and anxiety is just a presentation of my ADHD. But it's possible that like you could have both. It's possible that you could have neither. But either way, a mental health professional will be able to get you like the answers to the questions that you have. And I encourage that. And especially like because mental health stigma in our community, it's often I feel like hard to ask for help and be like, what's up? But there's like nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with having a disability. It's really just going to 
a doctor to learn more about yourself the same way you just do an annual checkup. And that's really all it is. And so if you have these things swirling around, would encourage you also because like I too am on ADHD TikTok and I love ADHD TikTok because like a lot of the things that they say, I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. But there are some TikToks that like do perpetuate misinformation about ADHD because like just because you feel like that doesn't necessarily mean that you have ADHD. And that's like, I think the thing when you have like a one minute video. And so um, this goes back to like my social media background, but like, this is why like when you have like a one minute video, it's really interesting because a lot of these videos are like, if you do this, you might have ADHD, right? But it's like, just because you do this doesn't necessarily mean you have ADHD. Like the root of why you do it is the same versus like the actual presentation of why you do it or like what the actual action is. And so that's why, like I say, just if you have the resources and can do so, definitely go get diagnosed. There's so much misinformation out there and just lack of information. It's still new to a lot of us, but yeah, like in that New York Times article that I talked about, it's like really interesting because basically the reason why a lot of women in their 20s, women of color in their 20s are getting diagnosed now is because in these unprecedented times that is COVID, there are a lot of new stressors and like triggers out there that just haven't been in our lives before, like working from home, remote learning, calling to attention, police brutality, and a lot of these different things that have happened in these past year or two. And all of the things that we've been able to mask and just like get by with before are now coming to a point where it's like we can no longer exist the way we have. And now we have to like rebuild that structure and create better and healthier coping mechanisms and learn about ourselves to do that. Also, like, and Jeremy knows this too, but it is uh, getting diagnosed with ADHD as an adult is like different than as a kid, because as a kid, you have to go through like this super long, like two to $4,000, like neuropsychological assessment. And that's how you get like the formal diagnosis from a doctor that says like you have ADHD. And that's also the same way you get diagnosed with like dyslexia and stuff as a kid. And, but the reason for that is because like for paperwork and education accommodations, like you need to have that formal paperwork, but for Mm -hmm. things like when you're an adult, right? Like, and also it's like, you need to have all that information as a kid, because that's like also really important for like early intervention. But when you're an adult, right? Like there is no early intervention. There is no masking symptoms. There is no early signs. You just are because I like went into my appointment and my, my therapist could tell within 10 minutes that I had ADHD. And that's actually the wrong way to get diagnosed because even as an adult, you should still have like at least like an hour consultation where they ask you questions because there is like a formal scale, but it's not like a three to four hour thing. It's literally just like, if you've had a therapy appointment, it's the same way. And so Yeah. And that's just so then that way you can get things like medication or like get a plan for like more therapy or like specific kinds of therapy that might help. So it just really depends on each person. But also in LA, it's been really hard to get appointments for therapists because everyone, these are (laughs) unprecedented times. So definitely recommend getting it as soon as you can, just so at least you have the answers. But yeah, Yeah. we can talk more. Last time that we did have a called Vanny, and then you're talking about how like respectability could potentially be a platform for me to uh, promote my short film and then in that like marketing or reviews it would be classified as like a film by like a disabled filmmaker and then you asked me if I was comfortable with that and 
it gave me like it's like existential crisis because like I've never I've never really like you know viewed myself as disabled until really recently but I had never even like said that out loud until Mm -hmm. like that call with you so and then it made me like really think about like why I had this negative connotation towards it coming to college I really grew to not view disability as a negative connotation and I think because of that growth mindset then I said yes to you that I am comfortable with that Mm -hmm. knowing full well that if you asked me like freshman year I would have said no so yeah I'm just wondering given that super long-winded context, why do you think there is this stigma around disability and how we can change it? Yeah, well, for one, I thank you and commend you for being that open. And even if you were at the point, and I think I told you this, where if you were at the point where you weren't comfortable identifying as disabled, that's also totally okay too, because to your point, like it speaks more widely to the stigma that we have as a society than you and your comforts because like what you do when you identify and disclose yourself as a disabled filmmaker is that you are actually unlearning ableist sentiments that we are just born with and like continue to perpetuate as we get older and like live in this society so like when you're unlearning it it feels uncomfortable and so like for you to get to a point of like being comfortable with it is really amazing because then that way we can like continue to fight that stigma but like there are people who are not there yet there are people who will disclose in like certain places because like, yeah, like I'm talking very openly about my disabilities, but like there are some spaces where I'm not going to talk about it at length, like maybe within my family because there is that stigma, right? That doesn't mean that I'm any less proud of it or that I'm ashamed of it, but it's just a matter of like where we are as a society. And so that was Really cool to hear that too, because I also went through a very similar existential crisis where when I actually first started my job um, and that bio that you actually read out at the beginning of the podcast, right, was pulled from the website. And so in that bio on the website, it does include information about my disabilities. And my boss was like, do you want to include that? Because the original one actually didn't. And I went through like this moment of like, fear because I was like oh my gosh like I'm gonna out myself on this bio on a website but it's for work but that like gave me the space and the comfort to own it because I was like I'm kind of scared of doing this but like this is how we fight the stigma and so that kind of answers your questions that like the more we talk about it the more we normalize it and that's why like on-screen representation to fight the stigma it's really within the context of like trying to normalize disability so then that way when you do see it in real life it's not as much of a shock because it exists because it's there and like it's like this beautiful like cycle in which you normalize it on screen and then that opens people's minds to be like oh people with disabilities can do that and then that informs how they view and see people with disabilities and like an example we always use is that like why can't your starbucks barista have down syndrome like they can but we don't really see that on screen and we don't really see it represented, but it can and it exists in real life and normalize it too. Like, for example, we always see like those videos on Facebook of cast members at Disneyland or like characters that know sign language. And then there's like the little deaf child that comes and it's like supposed to be emotional. And it's like, why is that emotional? It's just a kid who is a linguistic minority going to a park for families. And that's all it is. 
And so like, you just like rewarded someone for doing the bare minimum of just like knowing ASL when it really should just be normalized. That's just who they are. And it's just that existence. And so, and I think that's, there is such a stigma because I think there's different stigmas depending on different types of disabilities. And so like for mental health, I think like, especially in our community, it's kind of just seen as a sign of weakness. Unfortunately, for physical disabilities, it's seen as like physical weakness or like being incapable of doing things. That's not true at all because like the only thing that they won't be able to do if you have, if you're a wheelchair user is just walk. But like, why does that change anything? They can still do all the things that anyone else can do. They're just living their lives too. And so, and so there's like all these stigmas that's rooted in misconceptions of like when you see someone who is like a specific way and thinking about like what they can and cannot do. And like one of the big things too is that like there's also a movement in the autistic community where like we'll hear phrases like severely disabled or like very autistic or severely autistic. And those are words and phrases that are not appropriate to use anymore and instead are now moving towards saying high support needs and low support needs by doing that for example right like what you've done is now not put people on the autism spectrum in a box and so that so someone who is considered severely disabled isn't limited by these misconceptions and the stigma or someone who is seen as like not as autistic, and I say that in quotations, even though you can't see that, um, was then not like held back from or not able to get the resources that they might need. Um, and so like using language like that is also really important. So like that's also how we fight stigmas too. I think people also have to get really comfortable with the word disability. It has like kind of a negative stigma right now when it really shouldn't. It gives people power through the Americans with Disabilities Act. If you're handicapped, differently abled, have special needs, that doesn't give you power through the ADA. Being disabled does. Anything else I think is a euphemism and beating around the bush of what it actually is. It's just a disability. And then like something that one of my coworkers had said recently is like the word special needs. It's like his needs aren't special. Everyone has needs. So it's like, why are his special? And so that's like othering them. And Special needs is used in the context of education. We see handicapped parking. So it really speaks to how systemic all of this is. So it's a long uphill battle, but there's a lot of little things that people can do to help fight that stigma. But yeah, that was a very long answer. <laughs> but very profound. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think I could speak for Ray in saying that we learned a lot from this conversation and we're really grateful for you to be able to take the time out of your day to talk to us. I just wanna like open up the discussion about anything that you'd like to add or address that wasn't discussed in this conversation before we end the podcast. Oh, that is a good question. And I'm just trying to think of anything that isn't, hasn't been addressed, but I feel like we've covered a lot of different topics. It's fine if you have nothing. But just want to give you a chance. I just want to make sure you have the space, of course. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's like a question that I always ask when we're in interviews, and people are always like so thrown off when I ask it, too. So it's like, (laughs) the tables have turned. But no, I think we covered everything, not for the podcast, but just like a side note, real quick, too, for Ray. 
too. We at Respectability don't necessarily think that you need a formal diagnosis to be considered mm -hmm. to have a disability because there are so many acts like barriers to actually getting diagnosed, like to your point, like having the time to do it or even having the access and the money to get something just for a piece of paper that tells you you have it. And so it's like a balance of like not gaslighting yourself if you know in your heart that this is something that you have, but then at the same time, not trying to like misrepresent or like perpetuate something in the community. So it is this odd balance, but it's like, don't just at the end of the day, don't gaslight yourself. But yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I definitely do gaslight myself a lot. I think my whole life is just <laughs> me gaslighting myself about things. Also say sorry, Leslie. Because... <laughs> That's very true. Very true. Like, thank you. I will say thank you instead. Yes. I always like, thank when you. I say sorry, I'm like, sorry, and then I am not sorry. <laughs> I should start doing that. That concludes our discussion with Van Play. If you want to learn more about the important work that she does, check out respectability.org. Listen to our other podcasts on Spotify and follow our social media account at Iridescence Podcast to keep up to date with who and when our next guest is. Goodbye for now and thank you for listening. <laughs>